You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Each time one of these things happens, like 2008 was a big wake-up call, 2020 was another. Each time one of these things happen, for the first time, people come to gold never before. They now see something that they hadn't seen before, right? And now they suddenly say, now this makes sense to me. I mean, because gold is inconvenient. You're going to go to the coin store, you're going to buy whatever, $50,000 worth of stuff, looking over your shoulder, you know, it's, it's a little scary, right? Uh, am I going to get jumped on the way out of the store and, you know, someone's going to follow me home and, um, you know, it's, it's a very unfamiliar and uncomfortable thing. But, you know, watching a bank fail like that is a very uncomfortable thing, too. Hey guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and Junior Stock Review Premium. Today with me, I have Keith Winier of Monetary Metals. Keith's a returning guest, and so we'll jump right into the questions. Keith, big news uh, around the world last week with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, I think it's been on all of our minds this week as the, the mess sort of gets cleaned up. Um, in your recent blog post, you said that the root cause of the collapse is government interference in money and credit. So if this is the case, is SVB just a tip of the iceberg or have the Fed's actions uh, brought us some stability moving forward? Well, that was the um, the hope and the intention. But, um, you know, the Sunday after Silicon Valley Bank failed, then um, Signature Bank failed. And so then the government, I don't know if this was the Fed or the FDIC or which government agency it was, said, oh, by the way, um, we're going to guarantee the deposits, even those that are above the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit. And um, so that, that should make everything go go good. But uh, obviously that signals that they're worried about a systemic risk. Otherwise, why would they do that? And then this week, so then um, I think it was already on Friday, but certainly by Monday, there were murmurings about, as the First Republic, something Republic Bank. I had the time to really read the story yet. And so um, a whole bunch of other banks led by J.P. Morgan Chase um, are, are giving them some sort of emergency loan. So, so what's going on here is that you know, if you have a deposit at Chase um, or the other, you know, three or four top banks, you're pretty well assured the government would never let them go down. Whatever facility they might need, you know, the government's going to provide it. But smaller banks, you don't know that. So if you're at some sort of, um, you know, uh, regional community bank of North Main Street in some, you know, some little town that has one branch, or a couple of branches, you know, they will let them go down. And, uh, you don't know, you cannot know, I call it imponderables, whether the government, because they've, they've suspended the rule of law. The law was that there's a $250,000 deposit guarantee, and now uh, they violated that. But that's not necessarily a precedent. This isn't like, you know, the old common law system where, you know, decision makers have to think about precedent and bind themselves for, for future decisions. You know, some other bank fails, uh, and the politics play out differently. You, you can't count on that bailout if you're a large depositor. So every large depositor and every small depositor has to be thinking, why do I keep cash at um, you know the community bank of, of North Main Street when I could just open an account at Bank of America across the street and you know transfer my deposits there? So there has to be, I haven't seen the numbers, I'm sure they must be out there on the internet, um, you know, massive outflows from these little banks into the big ones. And of course, that's a run on the bank. So um, uh, you know, there's, there's gonna have to be more failures just because they, they can't handle it. That's a withering. So, so uh, for Silicon Valley Bank, on Thursday alone, 25% of the total deposit base attempted to withdraw. Even, even if you were healthy, how could you possibly withstand? That would be a withering 
uh, you know, rain of, of, of fire, you know, coming down. And um, of course, the problem is they all uh, had an inflow of deposits during the go-go years of COVID stimulus. And um, they were forced to buy long, you know, duration assets at record high prices. So if you bought a 10-year treasury bond, just to put this in perspective, if you bought a 10-year treasury in August of 2020 and you sold it at the beginning of last week, you took something like a 20% loss. So obviously a bank can't take a 20% loss because that just makes them insolvent. Assets less the liabilities, they're done. So um, you know, how do you how do you correct us? Well, you can go on TV and you can jawbone, blah, 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 blah. But the problem is baked in the cake. So what are they gonna do? Well, we'll see. Um, but there, there is absolutely uh, um, a much larger iceberg, just the, you know more than that little jagged corner sticking up above the water. Right, right. So if I correct me if I'm wrong. So you're saying that the the smaller banks could have uh, an issue moving forward because it's clear that the Fed is favoring the larger banks and and they're, those are the ones that are going to get the backing. So the risk is that the the people take their money out of those smaller banks and they put it into the bigger banks. And this, in effect, like you said, is a run on the bank. And so do you think that ha- like how long does something like that take to play out? Is that something that happens in 2023? or is this something that happens in the next two or three years? It's always hard to guess how long these things take because, you know, Adam Smith said there's a great deal of ruin in a nation, I suppose, in a bank as well. Um, and then, you know, the, the other thing that comes to mind is the quote from Ernest Hemingway in one of his books where somebody asked the character, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, um, at first slowly, then all at once. <laughs> um, so, That's a good one. That's really good. You know, there's, there's been a net withdrawal of deposits because the Fed has been, as a deliberate monetary policy, um, you know, contracting the uh, you know the, the money supply. M zero has, has shrunk by something like sixteen percent, um, just as of just before Silicon Valley Bank. I have a funny feeling that's reversing right now. Um, but uh, you know, you know, so M zero includes bank deposits and you know paper currency in circulation, and maybe a few other trivialities. The paper in circulation, first of all, is a very small fraction of the total amount out there. And um, secondly, I'm sure that didn't shrink. That's going to be pretty steady from day to day or, or month to month, which means basically bank deposits shrunk by 16%. So you have this massive inrush, banks buy these long duration bonds, then you uh, engineer a rising interest rate, so all their bonds are underwater, and the banks have a, a magic trick for dealing with that, which was created after 2009 because people felt that the lack of this magic trick was the cause or at least exacerbated 2009, which is not true. So the banks you know, sort of somehow cope with that, but when the deposits withdraw, there's no magic trick anymore. You have to sell an asset to come up with the cash to pay the depositors. You're selling all these things at gigantic losses. At some point, that can't be concealed anymore. Then that makes the depositors even, you know, jitter. previously they were withdrawing, not because they were jittery, but because they were spending their cash. That was the value bank's problem. There wasn't any jitters. It was just that's what startups do when their cash flow negatives, they spend. And they weren't raising money in the second half of 2022. They were spending. So that was a run on the banks. And then the banks were forced to deal with these losses. Then the you know, reporting of those losses makes people jittery. And then you first accelerate the run on the bank. Yeah, that has to be happening to a lot of banks all over the place. We will see all sorts of things cropping up in 2023 until the Fed goes back to zero interest rates and beyond. And we'll see how long that takes. So were you surprised to see the European Union come out with a half point raise? And this is sort of in the same 
same time frame as Credit Suisse taking was it fifty billion uh, Swiss francs from the Swiss National Bank? Like it seems kind of counterintuitive. You know, on the one side they're saying we're raising rates because we're strong, and then we're also you know on the other side one of our strongest monetary uh, hubs in Europe is bailing out uh, you know a, a major one of their major banks. What do you think of that? Yeah, at first I was I was surprised. I'm like, there's no because I've been saying the whole time it's a falling interest rate trend. All the drivers are there. You can't reverse this. If the Fed, I'm going to say this a year ago before they, 13 months ago before they started, if the Fed tries to hike, they won't get very far and they won't hold it for very long unless they want to precipitate crisis, and, which is a political decision. So who knows? Maybe they do. But now we're just at the early edges of that crisis. So, you know, I say the same thing about Europe. But here's the thing. The U.S. banking system is less unsound than the European banking system. So if we have problems here, you know, it's worse over there. So at first I was shocked. Then I was like, okay, well, it's obviously very political. And then I was like, you know what? Something tells me that right, if, I was, if I was evil and clever, what would I do? But put my thinking cat on. I'm, I'm like a mastermind villain, central planner. What would I do? Well, you have to continue with the posture of hiking. Otherwise, you lose your credibility and people sit off with your head. But is there a way that the, that the central banks can um, take us with one hand while they give us with another hand under the table. And so the Fed is already doing this right now. So the Fed has said, we will lend to banks, and this maybe this stays off the crisis. We will lend to banks based on collateral that's eligible, which is treasury bonds and government guaranteed things like you know, mortgages, uh, which virtually all mortgages in, in the US are now government guaranteed. We'll lend based on that collateral, which is called repo, you know, purchase repurchase agreement. And get this, we will lend at par value up to 100% of what you're carrying it on your books for, not the current market price. So if you bought that treasury bond in August of 2020 for a million dollars, today it's worth now, the, the, the yield on the 10 year is falling, which means the price is rising. But as of last Monday, that's about $800,000 worth. We'll lend you a million on $800,000 worth of collateral. Now, repo is basically they're buying the bond and the bank is promising to buy it back. But here's, here's the rub. You've bought it for more than it's worth. How do you, you can't really assure any, yourself or anybody else that the bank has the capability to buy it back. And in fact, the whole purpose of this loan is to bail out the bank because the bank is now underwater. So it, this basically is, a, a on the one hand, we're still hiking rates. And on the other hand, under the table, we are, um, you know, so we have quantitative tightening and under the table, we have a quantitative easing going back to zero interest rate policy. But we, we do it in such a way that the optics look like you know, we're still tightening so that Jay Powell can say, yes, I'm still uh, Paul Volcker. I'm still the hero of the story. I'm not the villain. Right. And, uh, well, we'll see how history judges him, you know, in that regard. But, uh, yeah, well, it's a good segue because my next question has to do with with the Fed's policy. You know, the Fed has taken the stance that, hey, we're going to raise rates and this is going to quell inflation. And I think a lot of people look at the CPI from, you know, the last, let's say, almost a year. And, you know, it will start last summer. We, we, you know, it started to come down. And so it would appear to many that the Fed is accomplishing their goal. What's your view of the situation? It has the Fed's actions to raise rates. Will this translate? into qual the quelling of inflation? So the mainstream theory is, is the quantity theory of money. You know, if you double the money supply, then the general price level should double. Yep. So how, in a, you know, in a modern central banking system, how do you reduce the quantity of money? Well, you increase the, the, the cost of money and, and people want to repay loans and, and shrink the money supply. So um, 
But that, that theory isn't even wrong. And I love that expression. Somebody gave Wolfgang Pauli, 20th century physicist, a paper. And he looked at it, crumpled it up, threw it in the garbage can, and said, it's not even wrong. Um, so what happens when you, when you hike rates? Initially, you destroy, I mean, basically, to decrease demand, you have to destroy jobs and you have to ruin companies. And so all those people suddenly have, you know, the companies all have inventory that has to be liquidated. And so that's selling inventory with urgency. So you're dumping it all on the bids, prices come down. And then all these laid off people, you know, certainly want to spend less. But ultimately, so the shorter term, you may get a bit of an effect. But longer term, there's a connection between the rate of interest and the return on capital. This should be an axiom of economics. You cannot borrow at a higher cost, a higher cost of capital than your return on capital. If I run a hamburger shop and I get an 8% return on capital, I could borrow 5% all day long, right? But if they hike the interest rate to 8.1%, it's impossible. I'm, I'm going to go out of business sooner or later. And so uh, people think, oh, well, you're destroying demand. And I say, well, first of all, we have a welfare state. It's not like unemployed people necessarily eat any less. Uh, and, and, and they don't, really. Um, you have this very, very extensive welfare state. I'm not sure they buy less iPhones, clothing. Maybe they buy less new cars if they're unemployed. But um, a lot of these other things, they don't anyway. But people think, oh, well, we're destroying uh, demand faster than we're destroying, or they think they're destroying demand. I point out Say's law, you know, supply is demand. What you're, what you're hoping for is an impossibility. It's a magnetic monopole. You think you're going to find a north magnetic pole without attached, you know, in the same bar to a south. Oh, no, but, you know, demand is going to be destroyed faster. But actually, if the interest rate's going up, you necessarily have to keep destroying supply until the marginal return on capital is above the cost of capital. And so um, you set in motion something that occurred after World War II to 1981, if you could even make it work, and I'm arguing you can't anyway. So the theory just, they have the sign wrong. Remember there was a, an aborted space shuttle launch where um, they, they somehow programmed in the gravity of the moon as negative, in other words, that the gravity of the moon would repulse the spacecraft rather than, uh, you know, so obviously if you launch that way, um, you know, you'd crash. You'd, you'd be trying to drive at the moon to overcome its gravity and you'd crash into it. They have the sign wrong, which is obviously a terribly catastrophic bug, but the mainstream monetary theory has the sign wrong. So initially, yeah, you're getting, you know, liquidations, all kinds of things. But what do you do for an encore? So, so imagine you're a company that um, distributes bricks for, for building, building trades. Interest rates skyrocket. Nobody wants to build new houses anymore because the cost of building that house is greater than what you're now going to sell that house for in the market. Right? People are monthly payment buyers. You know, if the interest rate skyrockets, the monthly payment on the same house would skyrocket. People can no longer afford it. So um, you can't sell that house anymore. So if you're the distributor of those bricks, you stop ordering bricks, obviously. And you have to try to sell those bricks somehow, so you put them on fire sale prices. What do you do if you're the manufacturer? Well, obviously, you have to dump your inventory, and you have to keep producing because you have this productive plant. But if the, if the situation doesn't reverse, what you have to do is actually close your doors and then sell off whatever you can at whatever price you can to try to repay your creditors. You're done. And that's, that's what a rising interest rate environment is going to do. It's going to go through the landscape of businesses and just ruin them until return on capital is finally above the interest rate. And that would be an awful lot of destruction of an awful lot of businesses and awful lot of jobs and much higher consumer prices like we had in the 1970s, um, and that, which is not the stated intention. So, um, you know, we'll see how this goes. 
Yeah, no, that's those are great examples. And I hope the people listening really pay attention to what you just said there, um, because I think it sort of is counterintuitive. I think people do look at look at their statement, look at the, you know, the marketing around that and sort of look at CPI and say, hey, it's working. But you bring up some excellent points about how supply destruction, you know, works counterintuitively and uh, and actually increases prices. And these non-monetary forces would seemingly be the bigger forces moving ahead. Um, I think it's great. So. So you've got that side of things. So I think one of the bigger questions I have is, okay, you've got these non-monetary forces that are, that are probably going to keep prices higher. So in effect, you know, we've printed money over the last, let's say 13, 15 years. What is the net effect of printing a lot of money? You know, that, like you said, that traditional um, view of, of the money supply, what effect does that have? And what is the risk of printing money to infinity? It has the effect of driving up asset prices, which drives down the cost of capital to expand production. So you see, obviously, Silicon Valley, the epicenter of the crisis for Silicon Valley Bank, you know, these are companies that are trying to produce something new, and they're raising enormous amounts of capital at dirt cheap prices. Well, some of them produce really cool things. There's biotech innovations coming out of that. There's software innovations. Look at, at uh, uh, chat GPT and so-called large language models. Um, that these are, these are going to be things that change the world. The cancer cures, the, you know, I have a whole quibble about calling it intelligence, but AI um, is going to have some fantastic applications that are going to make our lives better. So in that sense, okay, that's good. But for the most part throughout the economy, you go into every town where the restaurant business is, you know, restaurants are, you know, before, let's say COVID, restaurants were basically sleepy in most places because there's too many of them because the cost of opening, the cost of credit to finance any restaurant is too cheap. And you keep forcing that down. So every restaurateur is, is, has got a spreadsheet for the marginal location. And it's marginal because it isn't working. The spreadsheet is in red ink with the, you know, their estimates, right? Then you lower the cost of capital and you plug in the new, lower, you know, the new cheaper cost of, of borrowing into the spreadsheet. And suddenly it goes from red ink to black and you open the next marginal restaurant. That's a, basically a malinvestment. That is a, just a squandering of the, the you know, incredible wealth that... Um, you know, our civilization has accumulated over the last couple of centuries, and you're just squandering it with all these things that will never really produce a proper return on capital other than the distorted cost of capital because of central bank policy. So it's, it's destruction of capital, consumption of capital. And unlike rising prices, if the problem is they print more money and prices go up, if that were it, okay, that would be bad enough, right? But that's been going on for over 100 years. There's no reason why it could go on for another 100 years. There's no particular limit to that. But now I'm painting a picture of destruction of capital. Well, that is a finite terminus. There's only a finite amount of capital. And when that's all consumed, if you're the frontier farmer and you eat your seed corn during the winter because you're hungry, what are you going to do for the spring planting? Well, you can't. And so if you think this winter was bad, next winter is the one that kills you. Um, So we're consuming that capital. The finite terminus is when you run out and civilization collapses. That's the risk here. And I don't think it's happening yet. Uh, I, I don't see hyperinflation tomorrow morning or anything like that, but um, this is a pernicious, uh, you know, force and one that's very, very, um, you know, hidden. This is that uh, that John Maynard Keynes John Maynard Keynes quote where he says, "There's no surer way to overthrow the capitalist order, which means you know civilization, than by debauching the money, blah 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 blah, arbitrarily enriching a few, impoverishing everybody." People think he's talking about rising consumer prices, but at the end of the quote, he shows he's not. Because he says, and it, and it destroys by a process of engaging the hidden forces of economics, 
we should aid in the call incentives and doing so in a way that not one in a million can diagnose. And it's that one in a million. Now, if he meant inflation to rising prices, then he's either stupid, he has to be stupid because everybody sees rising prices. I'm old enough to remember the late 1970s as, as a kid. Um, you know, the nightly news would talk about inflation every day. That was the conversation everywhere you went. And you went to the grocery store, every price of every item was up noticeably to a kid's eyes. From last week when we went grocery shopping last week, every item was more expensive than a week ago. That's what it looked like at that time. Everybody was talking about it. So Keynes thinks no one's going to notice that. He's a moron. And I don't think he's a moron. I think he's an evil genius. So I think he meant something else. And what he's talking about is by driving the interest rate to zero, which he stated was in his intention in a lot of other places, you um, arbitrarily enrich a few because those who borrow to speculate in assets get really, really, really rich. The rising inequality that has so many people you know, very angry today. But you're generally impoverishing society because you're squandering the accumulated capital that will eventually lead to a collapse. That was Keynes' intention for our, our civilization and what he wanted to happen. It's happening now. Um, so, no, we're not dying the, you know, fiery incineration of, of hyperinflation. We're dying, dying the dark, cold, lonely uh, death of drowning, slowly sinking under the waterline, not to you know, reemerge. So, yeah, it's still death, but it's a very different mechanism. Okay. Um, I think many investors, you know, with what's gone over the last, you know, one or two years would have expected the gold price to be well over $2,000 an ounce. And the fact is that it hasn't. And, you know, even up to a few months ago, it was, it was much lower. My question for you is, has gold performed the way you would have expected over the last year or two? Like, is the gold price at a price that you think is where it should be? You know, I, I, I sort of answer that on, on a couple of levels. The first is, Kings was right about one thing. And you know, wrong about so many things, but he's right about one thing, which is he's talking about um, you know markets and how how things are priced, uh, particularly in speculation. And he he uh, creates this example of a fictitious beauty contest. So suppose the newspaper runs this beauty contest, and they publish the pictures of a hundred beautiful women, and they say we're going to give a ten thousand dollar prize. I think it was, which in those days was a lot of money, um, to the person who um, correctly. Um, you know, ranks the the, uh, the beauty of the women, uh, you know, correctly. And correctly is defined by what the average is of all the uh, respondents. So he said, notice, you're not really trying to figure out who's the most beautiful. You're trying to figure out who all the other people think is the most beautiful. And all the other people are trying to figure out who they think everyone else is trying to think is the most beautiful. So that's called a Keynesian beauty contest. And, you know, the, the, the price of an asset, of any asset, uh, you know, in these turbulent, centrally banked, stirred seas, um, you know, as, as, a, as a Keynesian beauty contest to some degree. Um, everyone wants to pile into gold when gold is about to go up. So everyone's trying to figure out when everyone else is about to buy it. Um, so, so you get some of that. And so that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, the bigger thing is that for every reason to buy gold, and I write an awful lot about it, and essentially Silicon Valley Bank is the punctuation on the end of my proof of, of the whole point, which is, and I wrote about the same concept when um, the Cypress banks collapsed back in, was that 2013? I don't know. Yeah, that time 2012, yeah. Um, and that is, you know, if you were in Cyprus and you bought gold, you know, the day before the banking system collapsed, and then the banking system collapsed, at, you know, the day after, the point of having the gold wasn't that the price went up in euro terms. In fact, I think for those few weeks of that month or two period, it was actually going down in euro terms. But the point is, you had money that still worked. And um, anybody that had uh, banking deposits in Cyprus 
they're limited to 600 euros a day, you know, withdrawal. Of course, unemployment on the island went up to 40% or something like that. You know, everybody was basically just screwed. Whereas if you had gold in your pocket, you could go to any boat at the harbor and get to the mainland, which as a citizen of Europe, you had the right to do, and go to some place like Germany where there were jobs and get a job and, you know, go on living. So it was about um, return of capital, um, you know, more than anything else. And now Silicon Valley Bank, you know, proves that. But for every buyer, there's obviously sellers. And I think a lot of the sellers are forced, right, as, as they, their finances are turning down for them. And when that happens, you have to sell whatever asset you can. And if you own something that's highly illiquid and hard to, hard to price and, you know, tough times, you know, you, you might lose 80 or 90% to sell it. So I, I still recall an example of a guy who bought some famous old master's painting in fall of 2007. And he paid, I think it was $13 million. Now I'm losing some of the details become fuzzy. I mean, it was a famous, you know, Renoir, Monet, I don't know what it was, something. Um, and in fall of 2008, he had to sell it, sold it for $100,000. So it just shows now, if, if you wanted to buy it, you know, in, in fall of 2008, you'd find the offer prices weren't really down very much. But the bid price, if you needed to sell with urgency, Right, the, the bid ask spread, which on paintings is probably already ten or twenty percent. The bid just goes away. So, so if if you need to raise um, thirteen million dollars in cash, and you have thirteen million worth of gold, and you have thirteen million worth of painting, you can't realize thirteen million of painting. It's the gold, right? So, so but which is the whole reason why people buy gold in the first place? It has the liquidity. The bid ask spread in gold never really blows out like that. Um, so, yeah, they're selling the gold, and to to the point earlier. You know, people look at inflation and say, why isn't gold keeping with inflation? The answer is we have very large non-monetary forces driving prices up, right? So we have trade wars and tariffs. Um, I don't know what Canada has done, but the U.S. slapped a tariff on Canadian imported lumber. And Canadian imported was aluminum or iron or something like that. Um, imported scotch whiskey, all sorts of things got these tariffs under Trump, which Biden has not repealed, right? So that's, that's the lesson of both parties. Each party has their preferred thing that they want to do to you. And the other party protests, but the other party, when they get in power, it's not that it offends them that the government is doing this to you, but they have a different set of priorities of what they want the government to do to you. So Biden hasn't repealed the tariffs. So you have trade war and tariffs, you have onshoring, um, you, you have that sort of trend. You have green energy restrictions, right? So there's, there's restrictions on all, all sorts of energy related and resource and extractive industry related things in, in Canada. It's harder to get permits on everything from coal to metal to whatever oil. Um, you have um, the COVID lockdown and then the abrupt unlock created this whiplash effect that I think the supply chain is recovering now, but I'm not sure it recovered to the same level of efficiency, i.e. low cost that it was, you know, pre-COVID. It's, it's at a new normal now and you can get things again, but not as efficiently. And then finally, Ukraine took a lot of production offline. Obviously, Ukraine was a big exporter of wheat um, and, and certain other commodities, I think, and um, neon, was it neon? Um, yeah, there's, there's a gas they use in semiconductor manufacturing, argon, argon and neon. And I think that was like the, the leading source of that. And that's gone offline. And so you have all these things that are pushing prices up that have nothing to do with the monetary system. And so why would you expect gold to respond to those things? And um, so the price of gold going up now, which I think more, and it's interesting because nothing else, and prices of nothing else are going up other than treasury bonds. Um, why, why is the price of gold going up now? Well, it's because that's counterparty risk issue, right? If you own a bar of gold, there's no other party that if they default, you lose everything. If you have a banking system deposit, it's only as good as the bank behind it. And now you have to question that. 
And so, yeah, people are buying gold. And so the price of gold is up. Um, you know, pretty, I think, is it every day since Silicon Valley Bank? Was, was, there, was there one down day, I think, maybe? But anyways, it's clearly a trend of, of, of going up right now. And, um, I, I, you know, each time one of these things happens, like 2008 was a big wake-up call, 2020 was another. Each time one of these things happen, for the first time, people come to gold like never before. They now see something that they hadn't seen before, right? And now they suddenly say, now this makes sense to me. I mean, because gold is inconvenient. You're going to go to the coin store, you're going to buy whatever, $50,000 worth of stuff, you're looking over your shoulder, where, you know, it's, it's a little scary, right? Uh, am I going to get jumped on the way out of the store? And, you know, someone's going to follow me home. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very unfamiliar and uncomfortable thing. But, you know, watching a bank fail like that is a very uncomfortable thing, too. So yeah. you get people to jump off the fence. Right. Um, I think it's inevitable that the USD, USD's reign as the world's reserve cur currency or preeminent currency will end at some point, uh, but it doesn't necessarily need to be imminent. Uh, with the emergence of and strength of the BRIC nations, uh, are we seeing in real time the new strongest financial power block for world trade? Trade is one thing. Um, right now, who can produce the commodities is very important. And obviously, with all this ESG ancient Indian burial grounds, you know, there's a hundred reasons why you're not allowed to get a permit to get a mine in Canada or the U.S. or Australia or other places like that. And a lot of these other places, basically regulatory arbitrage. In Russia, you know, there's no such thing as NIMBY. There's no such thing as environmental consideration. Same thing in China. If they decide they want to put in a dam at Three Gorges, well, okay, so 10,000 towns and cities have to be moved. You know, 5 million people are dislocated. Too bad. We're the communist government and you will like it. Um, so you have kind of regulatory arbitrage there, and that um, increases their fortunes in, uh, you know, trade. But in terms of replacing the dollar, you have several problems with these currencies. Uh, one is capital controls. I mean, if you really wanted to be a reserve currency like China, India has capital controls, Russia has capital controls. I don't know if Brazil currently does or does not. But you wouldn't have capital controls if you wanted people to be able to use your currency. So that's, that's one issue. The other is they just don't have liquidity to handle the flows in and out. You want to buy a billion dollars worth of real, um, you're going to move the price of that currency way too much. Thirdly, does anybody really want to be a, uh, a lender to Lula, to Putin, to Modi? In, in China, now I've, I've been to China and um, uh, specifically have a meeting with uh, you know, wealth advisors who you know, largely have the same job as they do you know, here in, in the West, which is help people you know, set up a balanced portfolio, plan for their retirement, all these things. But they have one overarching um, thing that they do for people there, which is they figure out how to evade the capital controls. Everybody who has any degree of money is risking, literally risking their lives. Like this is illegal in China. You get caught doing this, you could disappear to a secret dungeon where they torture you, right? And they're all risking their lives to dump you on to buy dollars and get the hell out with their money. Because uh, they know that, first of all, they don't trust the yuan anyways as a currency. They don't believe it to be sound. And also they don't trust the Chinese government because they know that if they say one wrong word or have one wrong look, then all their assets within China's grasp can be taken from them and they can be impoverished, even if they don't go to prison. So um, all these people are looking for a million you know, loopholes to, uh, you know, to escape. So while the Chinese people are trying to dump and repudiate the Yuan, we're expected to believe that the rest of the world is going to be trying to rush in. I, I'm just dubious of this. Um, then the final thing is... Um, we had uh, uh, Jeff Snyder. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he talks uh, extensively about the euro dollar system, 
how the dollar works in the rest of the world, where these banks are not directly tied to you know the Fed or anything else, but there's dollar deposits everywhere and, and dollar lending everywhere for that matter, and how this how this works at a mechanical level. And so he said to me, Do you know how much, what percentage of the so let me take a step back? There is an enormous amount of derivatives that have been created in the financial system over the last several decades. I think it's approaching one quadrillion dollars now. I mean, it, the, the notional amount of this derivatives tower is absolutely mind-boggling. It's stupefying. A quadrillion dollars. A trillion is not enough anymore. It's a quadrillion, a thousand trillion. Um, what percentage of that um, quadrillion dollars in derivatives has the dollar on one side? And I, I knew it would be a high percentage. Anyway, he said 98%. So it's not, and he said basically it's not that there's the dollar and other competing currencies. It's the dollar system, and that's it. And the other currencies are just a local script that you know if you you, know, you live in a local company town that doesn't let you trade in dollars, they pay you in script. That's basically the script for the locals. It's a dollar world. That's it. There isn't even there's no other competitor on the playing field. And um, you know you look at it that way, and it's like you know so the dollar's failing. Absolutely, it is. But my my retort to that is it's failing last. The other ones will fail first, and one by one, they will dollarize. Um, now, you know, Canada, the UK, you know, probably Europe has, you know, years, certainly, you know, at least left in it. It's, I'm not, nothing imminent here. But one by one, everything dollarizes, which actually strengthens the dollar. And Americans are going to be like, yeah, America, we're the, you know, <laughs> they're going to sort of be temporarily right for all the wrong reasons. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is a very destructive process and very hurtful to, you know, people around the world. Um, and Americans don't really understand why there's a lot of resentment, what the dollar is doing to people. But um, in the end, when the dollar fails, there's only one thing that will be left standing, and it's not going to be a Brazilian currency, a Russian currency, an Indian currency. Oh, my God, anybody who believes that should go and spend a week in India to just, really, you think that currency? No, no way. Or, or the Chinese currency. It's going to be gold. That's it. And, and you know, and silver as, as the junior monetary metal. And that's what's going to be left standing. And the world's, the world's choice is whether we move to gold and silver in a graceful, um, you know, sort of controlled way, or whether we end up in a catastrophic way, like after the collapse of Rome, you know, the surviving population was using gold and silver again, and not the dishonesty-based coinage of Rome. But, you know, it was a thousand years or 1,500 years of dark age. Um, some of the technologies of ancient Rome, it, it, was, it was a late 19th century before they rediscovered cement. Right, so a lot of things were lost, and the engineering and a lot of the other things that depended on cement weren't really rediscovered until 1,500 years later, 1,400 years later. Um, so uh, hopefully we don't go down that path. James Rickards, uh, in Currency Wars and a number of other books and interviews that I've heard him speak, he's talked about the weaponization of gold. And he's he talks about, you know, being a part of these war games where, you know, they've they've set up different factions and they all, you know, play this war game out. And, and again, he he talks about using gold as a, a weapon against the U.S., I, I, I suppose. I've never fully understood the idea, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on that that idea that he proposes. Yeah, I, I think there's some some problems in that when you get into, like, how does this work mechanically? I had a little thing on Twitter with him. He said the Chinese are, um, you know, manipulating gold down so, uh, while they're buying it up. And so, so I just said, okay, help, help me out here. I'll buy it. I get, you, you know, buying something up is cheap, and I get selling it if you want to, you know, drive the price down. But how do you simultaneously buy it up while you're selling it down? 
<laughs> he said, well, they're, they're um, selling the paper to drive the price down while they're buying the physical. I said, well, if you did that, so there's a spread between um, paper and uh, you know, futures and, um, and, and metal, and that's called the basis. And monetary metals, we track the basis. We publish that every day on the website for free. Anybody can go there and look. So I said, well, if, if they did that, you'd see right, the price of paper going down, the price of metal going up. There would be this massive accreditation. I'd be bellowing from the rooftops if that happened. And I can tell you there's no, at that moment in time, there's no backwardation anywhere to be seen. And anyway, he just kind of said something else and then he disengaged. And it's like, the thing with gold, right, is if someone says the dollar is weaponized, I mean, I, I don't think that's really the issue here with Russia and the SWIFT system. I think, you know, Russia knew it was going to be a, a, a pariah by attacking um, Ukraine as it did. And, you know, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with money were seized, like all the Russian planes and boats and properties and, you know, securities holdings and all sorts of things were seized that aren't really a money thing. But the dollar is certainly harming the rest of the world. So if you want to make a case that the dollar is weaponized and, and the U.S. Is, is using and abusing it, there's a certain case being made there. But the thing with gold is that it is, you know, broad-based. Everybody has access to it. It's not controlled by a central bank of one government. It's out there. And it's been out there for so many thousands of years, right? So in ancient Egypt, they wanted to try to control it, that only, you know, the, the religious institutions could have gold. It was illegal for the people. I mean, everyone loved it and prized it because, you know, they worshiped the sun and the gold, you know, gold was the sun metal because of its color and its shininess. Um, so everybody prized it and they wanted to keep it out of the hands of the people and only for the priesthood and the temples. Well, that cat got out of the bag. You know, I don't know how many years that, that, that held before the cat was out of the bag. And every, everybody has access to gold. So the, the idea of weaponizing, it's like, no, it's the most democratic. Everybody's got it. Everybody can get it. Everybody who wants it can have it. You know, every continent of the, of the world has gold resources, you know, somewhere. Now, a lot of it's politically locked up. Um, I wrote an open letter to the Greek prime minister when they were having their crisis and said, you should move to the gold standard and take first mover advantage. We opened the gold mines. And I did some research. There's, there's gold resources in Greece. It's all locked up because of environmental stuff and, and probably NIMBY as well. But, um, you know, it, it's there. So nobody can weaponize that. And, and gold is the thing that's used when nobody trusts anybody. When nobody trusts anybody else. That's how it emerged in the 19th century. It's, you know, Europe was at war with itself in most of the 19th century. So how do you agree on things? Well, gold is the cash on the barrel head that doesn't require trust in somebody else's government. If you hand over a piece of gold, it's gold. That's that period. No further questions need to be asked or answered. And so, no, I don't see it as weaponized. I see it as democratizing things. Um, but, you know, it's a matter of perspective, I guess. Silver is often referred to as gold on steroids. And I think for good reasons, the volatility in it, you know, can be seen in the price action. Um, but the silver market has changed dramatically over the last 10 years um, in terms of uh, consumption of silver. In your view, do you invest in silver for the same reasons that you invest in gold? So, you know, my, my view, I'm, I'm a lot less uh, looking for dollar price gains. And I, I wouldn't call gold an investment. It's like gold is money. Money is the thing you hold when you don't actually want to invest or speculate in anything else. Um, but silver certainly is a lot more volatile, and so it has a kicker to it. Now, I, I would admonish those people uh, in, in one regard and say, if it's really true that the silver stocks are being consumed, um, that's a process of demonetization. And silver becomes nothing more than an industrial ingredient, an expensive one. Um, but it's 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 you know it's a it's a cheap platinum or a cheap palladium or something 
It's just an industrial ingredient and not money. If the uh, fast stocks that have been accumulated over 5,000 years are being consumed, it's being demonetized. Um, I, I, I think that might be possible because right, so there's a reason why we had silver all those years um, and gold didn't win and become, you know, markets tend to be winner take all. Uh, there's a network effect around money. Why didn't gold win? Why would you have two metals that are shiny and heavy and either they don't tarnish like gold or, you know, it's pretty hard to tarnish silver and it doesn't, it doesn't all get rotted away the way, you know, steel does. Um, and the answer is gold is the most marketable in the large. So for larger amounts of transactions, you take the least losses to use gold as the intermediate good. But silver is the most marketable in the small. If you work as a skilled tradesman and you want to put 10% of your weekly wage into, into metal, um, you know, gold is very inefficient to do that. And, uh, you know, you have bigger losses and a bit less spread. And you have tiny little chips of gold. You know, think about what does $50 worth of gold look like? Well, it's a gram. A right? gram, yeah. <laughs> and it's not very satisfying. What's this $50 worth of silver is, you know, two and a half ounces. So yep. You've got sort of a handful of silver versus a little chip of gold floating in a little window in a surgery card, right? Um, so, uh, but now technology has made small bits of gold cheaper. And, uh, you know, digital technology, there's a lot of companies around the world that offer a gold savings account of some sort where you can buy, you know, in one dollar increments, let alone one gram increments, um, you know, at, at pretty tight spreads. So is it possible silver is being monetized? I'm open to that argument. I'm not sure that's occurring yet. But if it were, that isn't necessarily a good thing. That's not the killer argument for buying silver that people assume that it is. That we're going to end all monetary reservation demand for silver is not a killer argument for why you should buy silver and it's going to go up. You can earn interest on your gold and silver with monetary metals. Keith, please explain to the viewers how they can do that. So we um, lease metal to businesses that have a need for physical metal. So think mints, refiners, a jewelry shop. I always like to use the example of suppose you manufacture jewelry and every day you buy a kilo bar of 99.99% pure gold, which is probably above jewelry grade, but just use that as an example. And, um, you know, day one, you squash it under some rollers to make it, you know, really thin. Day two, you cut out shapes in it. Day three, you bend those shapes into, you know, ring shapes. Day four, you weld it with 24 karat gold solder. Day five, you're polishing it. Let's say it takes two weeks to go from a bar to a kilo worth of, of rings. Um, so there's 14 kilos of gold. It's in your manufacturing works at all times. Every day you buy a new kilo, but every day you're selling a kilo of finished product. You have 14 kilos there. Well, that has to be financed. Um, and if it was copper, I think you would just buy the copper and not worry about it because copper is cheap. But gold being $1,900 an ounce, you have to finance that somehow. The conventional means of finance is you borrow dollars. So you borrow a million dollars, you buy a million dollars worth of gold inventory. Uh, however, if the gold price drops 10%, you now have a $900,000 asset, but you have a million dollar liability. You are insolvent. So if you borrow dollars, you have to hedge, which means you borrow a million and a quarter, you buy a million worth of, of gold, you put a quarter million in a brokerage account where you can trade you know, typically futures. Um, and then you have this, anyway, you have management headaches, you have audit compliance, moving parts, cost, risk, complexity. Um, or if you lease the gold, then you offload, you first of all, you get the finance you need and you offload the price risk uh, to, to the investor in the gold. But from our perspective, the investor in the gold already wants that price risk and presumably is not doing so much that it's going to take food off his table if the price of gold drops 10%. Unlike to that business, that's an existential risk to the you know to the person who owns some gold. That's not an existential risk, 
And so it's a, it's a nice win-win transaction. This guy's owning gold and instead of paying, you know, three quarters of a percentage point to store it, he's getting paid two to 3% to lease it. This guy gets the gold that he needs and offloads the price risk as a nice win-win deal. And um, you, can never, you can never say, you know, zero risk. Anybody who promises you a return without risk, you should run away because that person is either a fool or a liar. Um, and the regulators will probably shut him down sooner or later because he just can't say that. But um, a lease is uh, the lowest risk thing that we can think of that will generate a return because it's not an asset that goes on the balance sheet of the lessee. It's not available to their creditors if they declare bankruptcy. Um, we can go on site at any time, scrape the gold, put it on a scale, and prove that there's more you know, more gold there than the lease amount. Um, and so it's a nice low-risk way of, of getting a return on it and um, demonstrating the point that if gold is money, it should be should be possible to earn money on your money. The point of money is that you buy money so that the money goes up and then you sell the money for, for non-money and make a profit in non-money terms. The whole point is you you put your money into something that generates a return. And so leasing is the first thing that we do. The other is lending. We finance gold mines. Um, now that is for accredited investors only, so we can't really advertise that. But conceptually, it's the same thing. If you're a gold mine, you need capital to buy a plant and get started or you know, uh, expand your plant, you know, build a bigger one. Um, if you borrow dollars, you have that price risk again. Price risk is, is probably the number one killer of gold mines. Uh, you know, the good ones. I mean, there's a lot of ones that fail because they don't know what they're doing or they don't have the gold resource that they think they do. But for the good ones, you know, you could be the smartest miner in the world and you have a great gold resource. The price of gold drops enough and you're done. They're forking you, right? So borrowing gold makes sense for them. And um, uh, so we just announced a deal with a Norwegian public company called the Cobalt Minerals. has a mine in Ethiopia and um, we're paying. So we call that a gold bond. We parceled that out as a securities offering. Uh, we've issued the first gold bond since 1933 and kind of trumpeted that. And uh, this particular bond is paying 19% interest net to the investors. So we think we've looked at the risks. We think we understand them. We certainly think we've disclosed them to the investors. And the big risk there is, so it's a very rich resource. It's 20 to 40 grams per ton, um, which is good. It's near surface, which is good. Um, the big risk there is it's Africa. And um, that's why the interest rate is what it is. But um, investors are pretty excited about it. And that deal was uh, quite oversubscribed because, you know, it seemed like a good deal to the investors. And uh, so that's what we're doing. And um, now that Silicon Valley Bank happened, you know, just all these things just constantly are driving people to monetary metals saying, we're interested in what you're doing because it seems like the antidote. You know, you're like the non-bank, non-system play. And, and we're like, yeah, that's exactly the whole point is we want to be that help bridge. How do people get out of this fiat system and into something else. And it's not about speculating on price. You have to finance production in, in whatever form of money for that money to get into broad use again. And so that's that's my challenge to the Bitcoiners. Like it'll never be used for finance. It's too volatile. Gold always was used for finance and, and it will be again. And that's what that's what we're doing. So investors that are interested can you know give us a call or uh, fill out a web form on our site and um, you know talk to us and that's what we do. Very good. And uh, we'll link to your newly published uh, 2023 uh, Gold Outlook report. We'll put that down in the description. Uh, Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Brian.
Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.